This is our final installment of season two of Two Brief Bios. This will end it off, and then next Sunday, Joel Linton, one of our missionaries, will be in town, and he will take the Sunday school hour to tell us about his work in Taiwan. And then we will start season three of Two Brief Bios, and we're bringing in some, some guests to uh, take a portion or a class or two of those um, of that season, so that will push us into February, probably March, all the way through March on these bios. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for your Lord's Day. Thank you that we can gather as your people, we can lift up our praises to you. Father, we can be fed on your word, that you will uh, work through your spirit and sanctify your children. Lord, we thank you for all the good things that happen on your Lord's day. And we pray that you would bless this one, that we would be fed, we would be built up, we would be strengthened, and we would use that strength to worship and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today our man that we are looking at is Martin Bucer. Martin Bucer, or Bootser, is the German form of his name. Uh, the Latinized version of his name is what most people know him by, B-U-C-E-R. But the German, Germanized name, which he probably would have had, is B-U-T-Z-E-R, Bootser. And so I'm gonna, I'll probably flip between the Germanized and the Latinized version according to what my tongue does in my mouth. He was born in 1491, November 11th, 1491. He died 70 years later in 15, or 60 years later in 1551, February 28th, 1551. Um, how many of you have heard of Martin Bucer? One, two, three, four. Oh, five. Interesting. Martin Bucer. One of the he he's an overlooked reformer, but one of the main guys in the midst of the mix of the Reformation, uh, that first generation of reformers. Um, and so uh, you'll, you'll see a bit of his role uh, in the early Reformation here. His father and his grandfather were coopers. Does anybody know what a cooper is? Barrel maker. Yeah, so I think, I think uh, Martin was a little smart and precocious, and so they, they put him in the, there was a, a Latin, very famous Latin school in Strasbourg. Uh, a humanist Latin school, and he went to that and was trained and was pushed toward the monastery. He started out as a Dominican, but was uh, like, like everybody, was influenced by Martin Luther and left the Dominican order. But by, the, by 1510, so he's about the age of 18, he becomes a deacon in the Order of the Dominicans. In 1515, he's made his way to Heidelberg to study theology. 
And it was one of the Dominican, one of the places where the Dominicans got further training was in the German city of Heidelberg. In 1516, he's ordained a priest. 1517 and 1518, 1517, right, should ring a bell, 1517, 95 Theses, Luther, right, Wittenberg Castle. Uh, 1517 and 18, he's reading the humanists like Johannes Froben and some guy named Erasmus. And, and of course, he's trained as a priest, so what does he spend his time studying? Mm, maybe. <laughs> Aristotle. Via Thomas Aquinas, right? Yeah, exactly. And so um, he, his studies would have been centered on Thomas Aquinas, and uh, that sort of amalgamation of philosophy and theology, if you want to call it that. But I'll leave Renton, who knows more about that, to, to uh, re reacquaint us with that. In 1518, Luther shows up in Heidelberg. For the Heidelberg Disputation, as it has come to be known, there Luther is preaching the doctrines of the Reformation, 1518, right? This is a year after he posts those theses. And what is he writing about? He's defending his doctrine of human depravity and the bondage of the will, right? So he's, he's getting into the bondage of the will. Martin Bucer was there heard Luther's teaching, and met Luther, and immediately became an avid follower of Mr. Luther, Dr., Reverend Dr. Luther, Reverend Dr. Priest Dr. Luther. Um, he became an avid follower, and then right off the bat, Bucer does something. He says, look, Luther and Erasmus, their ideas are compatible. And that sort of became Bucer's role all through the Reformation, is trying to bring together what we would determine are very separated and disparate elements. He, he's known as sort of an early ecumenicist, trying to bring disparate parties together. That would be his work um, through, through most of his ministry. Uh, he would make Luther very mad. Uh, uh, um, by 1525, when Luther published The Bondage of the Will, I don't see how Bucer could have seen their views as compatible, right? If you read The Bondage of the Will and uh, Luther and Erasmus debating this, Luther tears Erasmus apart. I mean, it really is a tearing. He, he, is, he, he is vigorous with his language. Uh, Luther is, and Erasmus is always making appeal to collegiality, and the way we express things needs to be collegial, and we need to have collegial debates, and of course, Luther was not collegial ever. He did not have a fiber of collegiality in his bones at all, uh, and that's why we love him, right? That's, the Lord raises up um, Luther's, and the Lord raises up Apostle Paul's and Apostle Peter's and Samson's, you know, and, and uses them. 
1519, he received his theology degree, but made it clear before the faculty at Heidelberg that he was breaking from Aquinas and scholasticism. Right off the bat, he tells them when he's getting his doctorate, you know, I'm following the humanists. I'm following this reformed movement. He had his Dominican vows annulled. Not, he didn't just walk away from them. He, he had them annulled because, and I think his argument was that his grandfather had forced him to become a monk. And you can't be forced um, to become a monk. And so that was the basis that led to him being, getting his vows annulled. He first pastored a church in Landstuhl, beginning in May of 1522. That summer, he married what type of woman? A former nun, <laughs> right? I mean, this is just following that pattern that we've seen with these reformers, right? They, they're priests, they become pastors, they leave behind their monastic vows, they find a former nun who's done the same thing. And they get married. She married a, a woman named Elizabeth Silberizen. Biographer Hasting Ells summarizes her work this way. This is what he says of Elizabeth. Elizabeth Bucer was no scholar, no intellectual genius like her husband. But as a mother and a housekeeper, she was worth more than a whole kettle full of rubies. Never conspicuous, never a brilliant conversationalist, she possessed, nonetheless, a genius for orderliness and economy that provided the stage upon which her husband played the role of hospitable host. If he wrote ponderous treatises, it was because she relieved him of the task of telling bedtime stories. If he took a leading part in colloquies here, there, and everywhere, it was because his departure made no difference in the perfect functioning of his home. If he showed an energy that was inexhaustible, it was because Frau Elizabeth took upon herself all the enervating worries about the wherewithal of existence. She provided the home and she honored her husband, honored him by a pious, industrious life that was a model of what a pastor's wife should be. Uh, quite high praise there, not the sort of praise that any feminist would want to receive, but praise nonetheless. He then worked, uh, so he pastored there just for a short time, and then he went and worked in another city called Wissembourg. He began teaching there the doctrines of the Reformed faith that we know, Sola Scriptura being the preeminent one. The Roman church had created rules that went beyond Scripture, right? We know this. Their doctrine went beyond Scripture. It was the way that they uh, elevated the, the voice of the Pope and the magisterium alongside of Scripture, right? And so they, they had a mechanism to add to Scripture. And the Reformers came along and said, no, all controversies of religion, all doctrine needs to come from the Word of God, okay? So he summarized those convictions in six theses and then called for a public disputation and the Roman Catholic orders completely ignored him. This was, in, this was in this Wissenberg. So he's sort of trying to do what Calvin did. He's, he's posting this, and let's debate it, you, you Roman Catholics. The, the Franciscans and the, the Dominicans in that city were like, who are you? We, don't, you know, we don't want anything to do with you. But those six theses got under the skin of all the common folk in town, 
And they were like, yeah, this is what we want. And they were sort of, they, they eventually forced the, the monks to leave town. <laughs> they rose up and sent them away. Uh, those sermons uh, caused the town people to rise up against the monasteries. So the Roman Catholic Church, because of this, excommunicated him, and that's when he made his way to Strasbourg. And it, the reason he went to Strasbourg is he was in danger. You get excommunicated from the Catholic Church and you're still teaching doctrine, means you're a marked man. All of these early reformers were outlaws in the church. And so he went to Strasbourg, one, because he had citizenship there, because of his family had worked in Strasbourg and was a member. His father and grandfather were part of a guild there in town. And so that's where he goes. And he would be there for the next 25 years and have significant influence on the Reformation. So after Strasbourg in the 1540s, he ends up getting exiled out of Strasbourg, ends up being a professor at Cambridge in England for the last couple of years of his life and uh, spent his exile in England. Actually, he was the guy, uh, there's a 1549 version of the Book of Common Prayer and there's a 1552. Bucer looked at the 1549 and talked to Thomas Cranmer and said, you know, you need to make some changes here and you need to change this and this and this. And so Bucer had great influence on that second edition of the Book of Common Prayer which I had no idea about. Uh, Strasbourg, what do we know about Strasbourg? It's technically a French city today. It's in France, but it's right there where France and Germany and Switzerland come together. The German, well, yeah, um, they have actually. Um, it's set on the border of France and Germany. It's actually the capital city of the Grand Est region of North Eastern France. So it is a significant city in modern France. And it's also the formal seat of the European Parliament today. Right? That is where the European Parliament, whatever that is, gets together and uh, does their business. But during Bucer's time, it was heavily allied with, not France, not Germany, but the Swiss down south. So very much allied with the Swiss. Um, this from a Ligonier article on Bucer. One of the central disputes during the time of the Reformation concerned the doctrine and practice of the Lord's Supper. Right? Wait, before I get to that quote. Um, like I said earlier, Bucer spent much of his time mediating between different parties of the Reformation. In particular, he tried to bring together Martin Luther and Huldrych Zwingli. Huge reformers, right? Two of the biggest names, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli. I mean, you put those up on the, the top tier. And Luther and Zwingli had different views on the presence of Christ in the table. And Bucer tried to bring them together to work this out, see if they could come to an agreement. Because he thought it was such a tragedy that there would be division within the reformation of the church when, you know, when they had just come out of Roman Catholicism, they didn't want to then, you know, um, separate and separate and separate and separate. 
That grieved him. And so the differences between Luther and Zwingli, again, centered on the Lord's table. And this is what Ligonier says about this. One of the central disputes during the time of the Reformation concerning the doctrine and practice of the Lord's Supper. Very early on, a rift between Luther and Swiss reformers such as Zwingli and Echolampadius. This division created not only theological and ecclesiastical problems, but political problems as well. The armies of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V were a threat to the cities and regions that had converted to the cause of the Reformation. Right? That's why we, we like Frederick and these lesser magistrates who were protecting the Reformers from Charles the Gnarly V. Right? The armies of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V were a threat to the cities that had converted to the Reformation. Disagreements over the Lord's Supper among Protestants led not only to ecclesiastical divisions, but to political divisions as well, divisions which weakened the Protestant cities politically and militarily. Bucer devoted much of his energy to the task of finding a way to reconcile the Lutherans and the Swiss. His efforts resulted in several important documents. He co-authored, for example, the Tetrapolitan Confession in an attempt to effect reconciliation. His views of the Lord's Supper influenced Calvin, who also took a mediating position between Lutherans and Zwinglians. Right? You got, you got the, the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, that the, the elements turn into the body and blood of the Lord. You got Lutherans who say it's not that it doesn't transform, but the physical presence of Christ is in, with, under, around the bread. Then you got the Calvin, Calvinist view, which I would put about over here. You know, Catholic, Lutheran. Calvinist, um, which is the spiritual presence, real presence of Christ, but via, via the Spirit. Um, Jesus said, I go away, I send the Spirit, right? And, and then you have the Zwinglian view, the Swiss view, which is there is no presence of Christ in the supper at all. It's just a remembrance of the cross, right? So here's Bucer trying to bring together Zwingli, who's on one extreme, and and Luther, who's on the other extreme to the Reformed parties. He would never do it. They would never come together. Um, not only did he try to mediate between Luther and Zwingli, he tried to mediate between the Reformed and the Anabaptists. Not only did he try to mediate between the Reformed and the Anabaptists, but he tried to mediate between the Reformed and the Roman Catholic. I mean, at, later in his life, he was trying still to bring the, to bring the Roman Catholics and the Reforms reformed together, which made him no one happy with him, right? The Marburg Colloquy is where Luther and Zwingli came together, and Bucer was there, and here's what this author, this is a biography of Bucer by a man named Martin Greshet, and um, let me just share a little bit of this with you. Bucer participated in the Marburg of Colloquy on October 1 through 4, 1529, attending primarily as an appendage of the Swiss delegation. The main goal of the statement, in the words of Philip of Hesse, but also of Sturm, had been to bring Zwingli and Luther together at one table. It was Philip's idea to urge Bucer to attend as well. And Philip is 
the civil ruler, right? He wants, he wants there to be some peace in his realm. And people are fighting about the presence of Christ at the Lord's table. We fight about masks. They fight about something important. Yeah, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. Right. The latter's efforts to reach an understanding in the Eucharistic controversy had earned him a good reputation beyond Strasbourg's borders. Caspar Hedio was chosen to attend as a second Strasbourg theologian. He had maintained a good relationship with Melanchthon, who's Lutheran, and was one of the few people to have close ties to Nicholas Goebel, the staunch Luther supporter in Strasbourg. The Swiss, Zwingli and Ecolampadius, with their entourage, arrived in Strasbourg on the evening of September 6th after a 13-hour journey by boat down the Rhine from Basel. Joined by the Strasbourg delegation, they continued their trip on September 18th, arriving in Marburg on September 27th. So they had just spent 21 days traveling. I mean, think of all these colloquies. Very hard to get places, very dangerous, very risky. And here they are getting together. Would that they had had Zoom. Bucer hardly played a role in the theological conversations of the following days. However, Sturm brought Bucer into action on the afternoon of October 3rd after negotiations collapsed. Sturm was apparently hoping that Strasbourg would abandon its commitment to the Swiss position. Luther, however, flatly rejected Bucer's statements. He not only claimed that one could not trust Bucer, but also declared categorically, your spirit and our spirit do not coincide. On the contrary, it is obvious that we do not have one and the same spirit. One more conversation did indeed take place between the Strasbourg theologians and uh, Andreas Osiander from Nuremberg and Johannes Brenz from Schwabisch Hall on October 4th, during which Bucer proved ready to make considerable concessions to the Lutherans. It is, however, highly unlikely that Bucer actually endorsed the Lutheran position on this occasion, as Osiander later claimed. They ultimately parted company unreconciled. Unreconciled. Luther and Zwingli agreed on 14 points. They couldn't agree on the 15th. Could not agree on the 15th. What was the 15th point? The 15th point was this. 15th, regarding the Lord's Supper of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, we believe and hold that one should practice the use of both species as Christ himself did, so both cup and bread. And that the sacrament at the altar is a sacrament of the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. And the spiritual enjoyment of this very body and blood is proper and necessary for every Christian. Furthermore, that the practice of the sacrament is given and ordered by God the Almighty like the word. So that our weak conscience might be moved to faith through the Holy Spirit. And although we have not been able to agree at this time whether the true body and blood of Christ are corporeally present in the bread and wine of communion, each party should display towards the other Christ Christian love as far as each respective conscience allows, and both should persistently ask God the Almighty for guidance so that through his Spirit he might bring us to a proper understanding. So you see what the 15th one was? Let's live in peace over this. 
Let's not divide over this. Let's allow differing views of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper and continue to study it and see if we can't down the road get on the same page. And Luther was like, blah, not a chance. Not a chance. Zwingli left saying, there are no people on earth with whom I would rather be at one than the Wittenbergers, the Lutherans. Luther left refusing to acknowledge Zwingli and his followers as Christians. <laughs> oh, man. And now we're in a presbytery that has both Pado and Credo Baptists. And I love it. We're following Bucer's influence in that. One of us is right and one of us is wrong, but we're living in peace until we figure that out. We're living in, in unity. We're living in the same home together until we figure that out. And we may not know that until, you know, the end of time. 1541, skipping ahead a bit, 1541, his wife dies. The plague comes to Strasbourg. The plague arrives, his wife stayed at her post and served the needs of the church. Five of her children died, three other people in her household died, and then she herself died from the plague, all in 1541. She, before she died, urged her husband to remarry a specific woman named Vibrandus Rosenblatt. Vibrandus Rosenblatt is a woman that you should know about. Um, she urged Vibrandus Rosenblatt to marry her husband. So she talked to both of them and was like, you guys need to get together. When I'm out of the way, go for it. She, she, Vibrandus, was the widow of Bucer's close reforming colleague, Wolfgang Capito, who's a, a big name in the Reformation. Again, he would, he's top-tier reformed guy. Um, he died of the plague the same, um, in Strasbourg, same time. Vibrandus was by now something, this is quoting an article, was something of an expert in marrying leading Protestants. <laughs> Bucer was her fourth husband, and she outlived him by more than a decade. Who was she married to? Ludwig Keller, from 1524 to 26, was a leading humanist. And then she was married to Johannes Echolampadius, which we've already heard about him. And he, for three years, uh, 1528 to 31, and then to Wolfgang Capito, 1532 to 1541, and then to Martin Bucer, she was married. Um, I mean, there's so much that I could say about that. Uh, she was, a, she was um, I, mean, I mean, I don't know anything about her. I'm sure people have, uh, there are biographies out there on her. Um, but there was, uh, this was not uncommon, right, for widows to remarry, widows who had served as pastor's wives to then serve another pastor in the same capacity. And uh, their reputation would have preceded them as to how, um, how 
well they um, fulfilled that role. One other thing about um, abuser that I'll, I'll mention. Uh, it has to do with Calvin. Calvin, you remember, in 1538, got booted from Geneva. Went there, started his Reformation work, lasted three years. They kicked him out of town. Where did Calvin go? Calvin went up the road to Strasbourg. And remember that Calvin wanted to live the life of a scholar. He wanted to, he wanted to sit and, you know be away from people, be timid, um, not get involved in controversies and just, you know, ascend the ivory tower and write his treatises. Well, the Lord had different plans for him, so um, he came to Geneva, Farrell, you know, shot lightning bolts at him, and uh, he stayed there, then gets kicked out, goes up the road to Strasbourg, and what does he do in Strasbourg? Well, he, he arrives in Strasbourg, and he lives with abusers for a while, lives in their house, so they're, um, you know, commiserating together, and then he ends up living next door to them or behind them, and there's like a shared yards behind the houses, and so I'm sure that for the three years that Calvin was there, Calvin and Bucer were, were talking frequently and working on the Reformation, and so he... Um, Calvin was there. He organized and pastored a church of French refugees. And what he learned from, he learned a lot from, I mean, I'm sure there was cross-pollination here, but he learned a lot from Bucer, particularly when it comes to worship. Uh, the whole idea of singing psalms was Bucer's, and that's what Calvin's known for, right? Calvin took that uh, that reform of worship back to Geneva, which he really had picked up from, from Bucer. So a lot of the re reforms of worship, also the sympathy that they had about reforming society within the, and, and church discipline. Those all originate really with Bucer, though Calvin is the one we, we remember. Um, he sort of uh, took it further from Bucer, but they originate with Bucer. So the church discipline, a committed church discipline, and the reform of worship, two big things that I think originate with Bucer for, for Calvin. And so Calvin takes, what, what a wonderful thing, what, what God was doing was preparing Calvin to go back into the cesspool of Geneva, the place he said he'd rather die a thousand times than go back to, was preparing him to have something to enact, to, to put into place, to work on. And that's what Calvin go, goes and does. He, he reforms the worship and he sets up the, the consistory and the, the company of pastors and begins to a vigorous um, church discipline. And so, uh, again, there's, I don't know what time it is. little section of this that I want to read. Calvin's, so this is when Calvin is in Strasbourg. And the Strasbourg preachers are observing Calvin. And, this, and it says this, um, he says, the Strasbourg preachers were impressed at the way in which Calvin built his congregation. He placed great importance on fostering the independence of individual members, 
on kindling and promoting faith in each of them, and on having them assume their individual responsibility for the congregation. Intensive Bible study and a strict church discipline were the means he used to reach these goals. Calvin also succeeded in winning back a remarkable number of Anabaptists to the Protestant fold. It is no coincidence that he entered his name in the membership list of the Taylor's Guild on July 29, 1539, a guild known for the many Anabaptists and their sympathizers in its midst. So isn't that interesting? I mean, Calvin even joins the guild that's filled with Anabaptists, and it's like he's becoming an Anabaptist to win the Anabaptists, right? The woman whom Calvin married in Strasbourg, Idolette de Bure, was the widow of an Anabaptist he himself had converted. So, I mean, a lot of ministry for Calvin among the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists would have been wanting to burn the cities down. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the radical reformers were, were happy to... They were happy the theological reformation was happening because it allowed them to latch on politics to it and take it to an extreme, Okay. And, um, and so here's Calvin in that midst, drawing people out of that movement. Um, Calvin and Bucer not only had a good rapport with one another, they also had much in common theologically. They both emphasized the gift of the Holy Spirit, called for a life characterized by love of one's fellow man, and insisted on church discipline. The young Calvin found in Bucer a trustworthy counselor and a friend who was almost like a father. In the following years, this relationship of mutual trust survived in spite of tensions and many crises. For Calvin certainly did not hesitate to criticize Bucer severely, for example, for his willingness to make generous concessions to the Catholics or for the vagueness of his statements on the Lord's Supper. But Calvin also could find remarkable words of praise for his senior and mentor. For instance, in 1539, he applauded the Strasbourg reformer as biblical exegete. Bucer is a man, wrote Calvin, who on account of his profound scholarship, his bounteous knowledge about a wide range of subjects, his keen mind, his wide reading, and many other different virtues, remains unsurpassed today by anyone, can be compared with only a few, and excels the vast majority. The extent to which Bucer and the Strasbourg Church influenced Calvin and thus the Reformation in Geneva cannot be determined with final certainty. It's worth noting that much of what we encounter in Geneva was developed and tried out first in the Alsatian Empire in Strasbourg. The liturgical order, the singing of psalms, the multiplicity of ecclesiastical offices, the weekly meeting of the pastors, and the school of higher education. I mean, these are all the things we know Calvin for. They preceded him in Strasbourg, <laughs> right? Let me read that list again. The liturgical order, the changing of the order of the worship, the singing of psalms, right? The multiplicity of ecclesiastical offices, deacon, elder, pastor, doctor, okay? Um, the weekly meeting of the pastors, right? Session meetings and the school of higher education, the Geneva Academy. Right? The training of pastors uh, that they would take on. So that's, that's Bucer. Any questions about his life? Any thoughts? Any concerns? Bob?
Yes. No. Um, but he was a Dominican, and I remember Luther. Um, was an Aus- Augustinian. No, Luther was an Augustinian. <coughs> True. But Bucer was a Dominican. And I don't know the nature of the Dominicans within all of that and how that affected public thought. No clue. Yeah, no clue. I mean, I'd rather be an Augustinian than a Dominican, but. I just assume that Augustinian has something to do with Augustine. <laughs> so, um, so I, yeah, I just don't know great details about that. Chuck? Man, there's a there's a deep strain of separatist in me. So, I mean, I don't I don't know what to say about that. I I like. Bucer seemed a little naive to me. That he could in the 1540s think that he's going to bring the Reformed and the Roman Catholics together. Seems a, a bit like tilting at windmills. Um, I I. As far as his attempts to bring Luther and Zwingli together, I, I wish that would have worked. I mean, not those, I think, were worthy goals that, that he was aiming at. And um, boy, if, if, that, if they could have agreed on those 15 statements, lived in peace, worked out their theology together, well, then we'd all be Presbyterians today. It'd be great. That's kind of a joke. I don't know what we'd be, but... <laughs> We'd be reformed, right? And we wouldn't divide at the table that's meant to bring us together. So, I, I mean, I, I, like, I like that you have someone who's not like Luther, who is so dogmatic and so strong as he needed to be. I'm not... You know, Calvin was dogmatic and, and strong in a different way than Luther. Knox was dogmatic and strong in a different way from both of them. But then you had men like Bucer who were like, okay, dudes, can we get in the same room? Can we, can we talk this out? Can we, tr- can we do the hard work of, of actually seeing how much we're on the same page and where the work needs to be done, and then, and then ask God to, to bless us with unity in that. So I, I think Bucer's a, an important, important element of that, but we live in, a, in an age where ecumenical, the ecumenical movement has been not about biblical doctrine, but about modernistic, about modernism, right? So you think of Machen and that whole fight, and um, you wouldn't want... Um, you wouldn't want Machen to be a compromiser, 
right, when it comes to modernism because it's a forsaking of Scripture, right? But these, were, these were men who were all on the Sola Scriptura page, who were trying to, you know, all their controversies were being resolved here, had so much theology in common. And, uh, and so you just, um, it's, I'm thankful for Bucer being the, Bucer being the sort of guy in the midst of that that would give us, would say, let's get in the same room. You know, and I want to read more about what he did there, but it seems like he was in a, a whole bunch of colloquies, a whole bunch of uh, imperial diets, and, you know, just he was there, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was personal Bible study, it was preaching, but it was a restoration of church discipline. So it was, it was the work of the eldership, as, as hopefully we know it today, which is to, um, we are called to examine the life and morals of the sheep and offer the word of God declared in that context to bring sinners to repentance. And that they restored that. With, with the Roman Catholic Church, church discipline was not a thing, right? Because, um, and, and even coming to the table was not a thing, right? There was no, if you don't come to the table, if there's no table access, there's no true church discipline, right? And so everything was a spectacle to be seen. It was some physical thing to be near and to behold and to perhaps touch, but maybe not, right? It was, it was perf- the, the gospel was performed in front of them, but it was not something they, they were called to live and believe. Um, it, it, was a, it was a mystical, a mystical thing. And so a return to the word of God, a return to preaching, a return to church discipline, a return to individual faith, and an emphasis on those things was the Reformation, I mean, at its core. Yeah. You mentioned the offices of the church, and then you mentioned doctor at the end of those. Yeah, the, Calvin, Calvin had advocated for four offices. So he had the deacon, the elder, and the pastor, as we know them, and then a theological professor, a doctor. So those who are training pastors, those who had gotten the terminal degree and were teaching pastors, training pastors. I... I don't see that, um, I would call those guys pastors, you know, hopefully you have pastors training pastors, but he did see a distinction between the two. Uh, Scripturally, I I don't know if I can make that argument, and I'd have to refresh my mind on how Calvin makes that argument. He may not make the argument, he may just make the assertion. Yeah. Yeah. He influenced Cranmer's work on the Book of Common Prayer. John Bunyan was not opposed to the Book of Common Prayer. He was opposed to being forced to use the Book of Common Prayer. That's a fine distinction, I know, but he, 
uh, he had no problem with people using the prayers of the Book of Common Prayer. He found great benefit in them. But when the church said, you shall worship this way, he's like, nah, we're out. Not going to do that. And I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. The, the state telling the church how to worship is inappropriate. All right, so it's a, it's a, it's coming out of the bounds of your sphere. Right. Anything else? Good questions. Yeah, last one. Make it good. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you're coming at it, let's let's figure out what the the Bible teaches here, and can we get on the same page in in our interpretation and views? Uh, that's one thing. But when you're trying to bring together d- disparate worldviews that are based upon completely different foundations, that sort of ecumenical movement is bunk. It means the destruction of Christianity as it's subsumed by some other worldview, right? And that's, you know, the World Council of Churches and stuff. They have no doctrine now, so of course they can combine with anybody they want. You know, if you jettison all Christian doctrine. So, yeah, this, there, his... Uh, I'd be a great advocate for, for Bucer's techniques, but not, not for 20th and 21st century efforts. All right, Martin Bucer. There we go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servants in the past and their example and their courage. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to love our brothers and sisters. Uh, that we would be committed to your word, that we would be committed to church discipline, these good things that were restored, pastoral care, these good things that were restored during uh, the Reformation. Lord, I pray that we would continue to reform according to your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.